With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to q and I'm Jane Ortlinger. And this episode is brought to you by X-Chair. For exceptional sitting. I'll have more to say about our sponsor later in the show. Our guest today is one of my favorites, one of our favorites, Perry Link, the China scholar. He teaches at the University of California, Riverside. For many years, he taught at Princeton, and he also taught at UCLA. His three degrees are from Harvard. Professor Link is an authority on Chinese language and literature. But he also does other things, history, philosophy, politics. Throughout his career, he has been a helper to dissidents. With Andrew Nathan, he edited the Tiananmen Papers. He also translated the memoirs of Fong Leisure, The Most Wanted Man in China, My Journey from Scientist to Enemy of the State. Today, we'll talk about the Olympics, chiefly, the upcoming Winter Games in Beijing. Perry Link, good to see you. Good to see you, Jay. Always is. Perry, I just a, a linguistic matter, if you don't mind. Uh, I just said Beijing. I hear others, including China scholars, say Beijing. Is there a right way? Uh, the right way is even beyond those two, but the first of which you said is much better. There is no phoneme zhi in any dialect of Chinese. And I don't know how that got invented. I think journalists about 20 years ago started doing it on the theory that if you don't know how to say something, a zh will probably work. <laughs> Maybe borrowed from Slavic languages, Shevardnadze and so on. But no, Beijing is definitely wrong. And China scholars who use it ought to be ashamed because they know better. Well, when speaking English, just in your everyday communications, do you say Beijing? Yes. Uh -huh. Well, I say Beijing, which uses the tones, but yeah. that's because I'm a Chinese language teacher and a purist, and you don't have to do that when you're speaking English. So Bay as in uh, New York Bay and Jing is, is perfectly fine, Beijing. Mm. And this name Fong Leisure, I, not to get bogged down into transliteration, but I don't know how in the world you get leisure out of the spelling L-I-Z-H-I. -I. Yes, well, the way of trans, of, of putting Chinese sounds into Latin letters has a history of its own. And the 
version that you're grappling with now was invented in the 1950s. It was a new communist government project to unify all the other ways that this was done. And it looks funny. It does have its logic, though. The, in Chinese language, there are two different J sounds. In English, we say judge. In Chinese, you can say drudge or judge. One's called palatal and one's called retroflex. Neither is exactly the same as the English J, but there are two of them and they sound like J's to a Western ear. So what that transliteration system did was to use a J for one of them and a ZH for the other. If you get used to it, that's, that's what it is. It's, it's a, what we call a retroflex J. Retroflex means the tongue curls back. So dr, 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 we don't have the sound in American English, but you can learn it. Well, <laughs> Anybody can. Thank you. So my, my tuition check is in the mail. Thank you so much. <laughs> Perry Link, uh, young Nathan Law was a guest on this program uh, sometime last year, the Hong Kong democracy leader now in exile. Right. He was born on the mainland in uh, 1993, and he went with his mother to Hong Kong when he was six. So when the when the uh, Beijing Summer Games rolled around in 2008, he was 19. And as he said to me, I'm checking my notes, I was very nationalistic. And he said, those Summer Games gave him great pride. Of course, he was just 15. And I know national pride plays a role in all countries. Uh, yes. Maybe this role is magnified in China. But I also think, shouldn't China be beyond that, those insecurities? I mean, it's been such a famous country and civilization for so long, for millennia. Can't they get beyond that? Or, or are those sensitivities still in operation? I hear in your voice, sir, a certain uh, uh, rhetorical effect. You, you, don't, you think China should get beyond that. And I agree with you, China should this marvelous civilization that has so much to offer the world in history, in literature, in culinary arts, in all kinds of things. Why should it feel so sensitive in this nationalist sense? The standard reason that the Communist Party of China gives for it, and not just them, the, the Kuomintang Party before them did too, was the so-called century of humiliation between about 1850 and 1950, when beginning in around 1850, the British showed up on the China coast with gunboats dealing in opium and had a huge technological advantage that humiliated China and the rest of the history until now you could argue is China figuring out ways to catch up and to in some ways exceed technologically and therefore uh, get international respectability. So that is in the background of this question. More precisely though, or more sharply I should say, is a deliberate effort by the communist government to exacerbate this feeling in order to strut its own power. This of course is a technique that uh, demagogues and dictators, <laughs> ancient and modern all over the world have used. If you want to gather support within your own country, you generate an exterior threat and get everyone nationalistically 
to rally behind you, who will be the champion in resisting the international threat. That very explicitly is what the uh, CCP has done, especially since the 1989 massacre. Because in the 1980s, there still lingered a sense in Chinese society that socialist ideals had something to them. We can all get together, we can serve the people, we can do things that benefit everyone. There were several blows to that, but when the massacre happened, it completely went bankrupt and everybody knew it, including the government. So where do you turn if you have no moral capital to draw on in order to claim your, your right to lead? You turn to two things for them. One was money-making. Everybody go out and be materialistic and make as much money as you can. And the other is nationalism. And the garnering of the 2008 Summer Olympics was a deliberate step in that process of marshalling nationalism to unify China and in particular to unify it behind the leadership of the Communist Party of China. So what we see now with the approaching Winter Games is an echo of that effort. Uh, we're doing it again now, and never mind Xinjiang, never mind Hong Kong, never mind the declining Chinese economy because it hasn't been going as great guns as before. And if the economy starts to slow down, that's gonna be a reason for popular discontent to rise. So for these reasons, we need to have nationalism and we need it behind us. And that's why the Winter Games are so important to the rulers in China. Well, Perry, um, on the subject of boycotts, let me ramble for a couple of minutes and then I'd like you to ramble for more. Uh, I remember well 1980 after the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan and President Carter made the decision to boycott the Moscow Games yes. uh, in 1980. And uh, you know, where he got the authority to do this, I don't know, but that's a different uh, question. Some of us were talking about that the other day. And uh, a lot of Republicans were opposed to this boycott, uh, probably because the president had a D after his name instead of an R. But I remember the ex-president Nixon appearing on television. And he said something that made a real impression on my teenage self. He said, you know, after what they've done, you can't just go over and high jump with them, he said. Mm -hmm. So we boycotted, and then they boycotted us, the LA Games in 1984. Right. And then there was this question of, I'm skipping a lot. We could talk about the 1936 Games in Berlin. The Winter Games, by the way, that year were also held uh, in, in Germany. In those days, Winter Games and Summer Games were held in the same country. You were simply the host. In any case, 2020, and uh, no, 2022, sorry, I'm way behind. I need to update my calendar, Perry, 2022. Um, some people say, well, we should, we should boycott owing to uh, uh, the mass persecution of the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, and so on. Plus, you know, China's a police state. In my view, the Olympic Games shouldn't be held in a police state. That's my simple rule. There are some 200 countries on the UN roll call. Pick one that's not a police state. Hmm. Uh, and so others said, well, how about diplomatic boycott? 
And this is what the United States has done along with I think four other countries, three other English speaking countries, I believe they're the UK, Canada and Australia, and lately the addition of little Denmark. Hmm. And I thought that um, a diplomatic boycott was pretty weak beer, if that's the expression. I don't think that's the expression, but you know, weak, second or third best. But the Chinese government reacted very testily to the diplomatic boycott. So I thought, heck, they care. Maybe it's a bigger deal than I think. Mm -hmm. So here end my rambles on this question of what to do. And I turn it over to you, Perry. Well, I, I favor the <clears throat> diplomatic boycott. In fact, I would favor a flat out total boycott. Let me say right away that I sympathize with athletes. Right from the beginning of this issue, I've worried that the athletes who've worked so hard and invested so much in preparing won't be able to participate. That would be a disaster. My favorite solution starting about 18 months ago was to move the games, let the athletes compete, but somewhere else. That of course, except for a few other oddballs like me, never got anywhere. And so we're looking at it now. The diplomatic boycott is, yes, it's a middle stand between saying a boycott and not a boycott. Uh, for many countries, I think France and Germany in particular should be looked at here. It's a, an economic pressure. <clears throat> We've seen <clears throat> in the case of little Lithuania, who after all started this boycott even before the US. And then if you go back to 2010, Norway, when it gave the Nobel Prize to uh, Liu Xiaobo, these two acts by these two small countries incurred a swift and severe economic reprisal from Beijing. There were, I don't know how many tons of Norwegian salmon that rotted on the wharves of Shanghai because they weren't allowed in because the Nobel Prize had gone to Liu Xiaobo. And Lithuania we've seen recently too has been squeezed not only in its own economy, but in its place in the supply chains in the world economy so that the effect of punishing Lithuania has been even bigger than Lithuania. And you're right, this is a nervous, insecure government in Beijing trying to stamp out a little spark of resistance before it grows into a wildfire, as Chairman Mao famously said about five decades ago. Uh, so they, they, the threat of a uh, diplomatic boycott. The actual harm isn't very big, but magnified through the insecurity of the rulers in Beijing, it becomes something that makes them very nervous. And you're right, we've seen um, angry diplomatic expressions from the last, I don't know how many weeks, about the rising possibility of a larger boycott. Mm. Perry, um, let me tell you something uh, personal and, and maybe of interest to our listeners. Uh, uh, Chuck Lane, Charles Lane of the Washington Post published a very interesting column saying, you know, we as private citizens can boycott the Olympics and that we don't have to watch 
And then we can teach the corporate sponsors that cooperation with the CCP doesn't necessarily pay. So heard him. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In their uh, pocketbook by not tuning in. And I, for many years, have been... Uh, a great China hawk, you sh- you could say, and I've written a lot about the subject of uh, uh, human rights in China or the lack of them. I'm pretty hard line. And people have asked me, Jay, you're not going to tune into the games, are you? You're not going to watch any of it, are you? And, you know, Perry, I'm not really sure. I don't think so. But I'm not really sure. Have you thought about this question? I don't know if you're oh, a sports sure. fan, but yeah. yeah. Tell me, tell me. I thought about it independently before I knew about Mark Lane and also before I saw the other night Laura Ingram on Fox News make the very same plea. Her slogan was not one minute, meaning don't watch for one minute the NBC portrayals because they're making money off a police state. In passing, I think it's interesting to note that we have the Washington Post, which is known as on the left, and Laura Ingram on the right, virtually agreeing identically on this issue, which comforts me in a sense. In the big split in our country over these political trench warfares, China is an interesting example of an issue that can get thinking people on the same page. Uh, but uh, I'm straying. Uh, Perry, to... I just want—I just want—I just want to interrupt. Um, the late Fred Hyatt, the uh, editorial page editor of the Washington Post, he was right. terrific on China, as on so many other subjects. Right. Um, but that's—that's a—that's a, that's a side note. Go ahead on, on on your watching or not watching. I decided even before I saw Laura Ingram and Charles Lane suggested that I wasn't going to watch. And that's tough for me. I've always liked to watch sports and the Olympics in particular, but I thought, you know, what the heck? Why do it? Uh, it's better if you don't do it. And if others don't do it, maybe that has an effect or not. Not, I think, I never thought Perry Link could turn the world around by not watching. It was more a personal thing. You know, it, it's wrong to do this. I think of Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative, you know, act upon the maxim that you could rationally will to be a universal law of nature. Never mind anything else. (laughs) And I cannot rationally will the repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang to 
be part of a universal law of nature. It just it doesn't work. So just fundamentally, personally, for me, I feel better as a person not watching. Ladies and gentlemen, we are hearing from Perry Link, the China scholar. I'm Jay Nordlinger doing Q&A. Back after this word from our sponsor, XChair. You may love your work or like it, but you may dread sitting down at your desk. I have a recommendation, XChair. With this baby, you may look forward to sitting at your desk because you'll feel supported and comfortable. More comfort, more productivity, a happier experience all around. You also have the option of the LMAX massage feature, a feature that gives you four different massage options actually. Feeling hot, feeling cold. You can just flip on the LMAX temperature regulation and this will heat or cool your lower back, which is pretty cool. Once you feel the customized support of XChair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, your back is liable to say, yep, this is the chair for me. Try XChair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Give it an audition. Let it sing for its supper. I bet you'll like what you hear. Go to xchairqa.com now. That's the letter X chair qa.com or call 1-844-4-X-Chair for $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchairqa.com. Welcome back everyone to Q&A. I'm Jane Nordlinger, speaking with the China scholar, Perry Link, who joins us today from, uh, are you in beautiful Southern California, sir? I am indeed, and it is indeed beautiful today. Glad to hear it. Perry, I, I think of the expression, the power of one. I believe it was a novel about South Africa. I'd have to look it up, the power of one. But I, I think of that phrase uh, when I think about this Chinese tennis player. You'll say her name for me, Peng Shui. That's very good. Well, I, uh, if I can name drop a little bit, I once had a chance to speak with uh, Yelena Bonner, the widow of Andrei Sakharov. Mm -hmm. We were talking about his Nobel Prize in, in 1975. And he said, she said something like, uh, my husband didn't like to talk about human rights in general. It was too abstract. People didn't really understand you. He liked to talk about individual cases of political prisoners, usually ones he knew personally, that people can relate to. And, you know, the, the Holocaust is such a big event in world history. The murder of two thirds of European Jewry I think it's hard for the human mind to think about, but they can imagine that pretty little girl, Anne Frank, you know, with those wonderful photos of her. Mm -hmm. China is so vast and the issues surrounding it are so vast, but it seemed to me for about a week or two weeks, boy, people could relate to that tennis player. Mm -hmm. They really could. There was a name they knew. That was a face they knew. They're really unsure how to pronounce Uyghur. You know, th this they could understand and fasten on, you know, and I was hoping it would be a bit of a, a dent 
in the PRC regime. What do you think, Perry? You've raised several very interesting questions. Here. Yeah, take your time. I loaded I'm, a lot in there. Take your time. I, I, I'm reading right now the the works of Primo Levi. A long time ago, I read his uh, The Drowned and the Saved, but there's a new edition of his complete works that's just come out that's beautifully translated. And I'm reading the piece about, it, it was later translated as Survival in Auschwitz but uh, it originally was titled by him as If This Is a Man. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful writing. It's mm -hmm. so concrete. Uh, and it reinforces the point you made a moment ago about empathizing with a person. We know about the Holocaust and so on, but to read this, if I were, if this is a man is so personal and direct and also philosophical. He has a way of writing that makes you think of big ideas, even as you're reading about individual people. So I completely endorse that notion that somehow it hits the human heart harder when you see an actual person suffering. Uh, on the Peng Shai case, uh, yes, the world responds better when it sees an individual case and uh, response to that. In her case, I think the world has slightly jumped the gun, though, uh, because we have in the United States and other places the phenomenon of the Me Too that's come along, and we see uh, ogres like Harvey Weinstein exposed and so on. And it, the Me Too slogan itself suggests that this is very common, and it's everywhere, and oh, Me Too, Me Too. Uh, and all of that's good, I'm all for that. Uh, but uh, when we jump the ocean and see Peng Shui and think, oh, there's the very same thing there too, I think there's a mistake involved. Now, I, I sympathize with Peng Shui, but that situation is, in my mind, considerably more complicated than a typical Me Too situation where a male with power takes advantage of a female without it, who cannot say no. Uh, Peng Shui, in her own original tweet that exposed this problem, acknowledged that seven years ago, she began a consensual sexual relationship with this top Chinese communist leader who was four decades older than her. <laughs> she was 27 at the time and he was 67, something like that. And then seven years later, now she exposes it, but exposes something that happened three years ago, not that happened just recently. And all kinds of questions pop up there. One is, what attracted her to him seven years ago, assuming that that was consensual, which she herself says it was. Hmm. And I don't know how far to digress here, but in a society like China's that's been regimented by the Communist Party of China for so long, people at the bottom or in the middle who want to climb up have to find ways of doing that. And what you'd think of in a more democratic or open society, you go to school, you work hard, you do this, you do that, you climb the ladder, isn't as easy. So there are other ways. 
One way, unfortunately, for females has been to uh, offer sex to people who are more powerful. The most common and easily documentable cases of this were during the Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, uh, when young people of both sexes were sent out to the countryside to learn from the peasants, quote unquote, and often went out sort of willingly, here I am being a heroic young uh, Maoist, but very quickly got dis disillusioned. It's tough living in the countryside. There's no opportunities, there's no good food, there's no entertainment. All of them wanna come back to the cities. So how do you get back to the cities? You have to go through the leader. Uh, there's always a leader in any Chinese unit. And the, the leader has power, and the leader is usually a male. And for men, bribery was one way to do that. If you could get a hold of a Swiss watch or something like that and go offer it to the leader in exchange for approving my transfer back to Shanghai or Beijing, that would work. Some young men even used violence. They carried knives and said, how about sending me back to Shanghai and or else, and here's the knife on the table. For young women, it was one of the most common ways was to cooperate in sex, shall we say, not to seek it, that's going too far, but to cooperate. You know, I'll sleep with you if you will uh, arrange my uh, movement back to the city. And that became almost a pattern. So in that background, when you see a case like Peng Shui, I anyway, need to ask what was the motivation behind her consensual relationship with Mr. Zhang Gaoli. Uh, he had a lot of power. As soon as she is associated with him, even as a mistress, not a formal wife, although according to her, he promised that he would try to marry her, uh, she immediately gets a social boost. She doesn't have to get in line to go to a theater. She doesn't have to wait for a passport. She doesn't, she, th that communist party run society system has a real royalty. The top leaders of the communist party run on a different level of society. They have privileges. They can run around and do things that other people just can't do. So I don't know Peng Shui and I don't want to judge her, but to jump to the conclusion that she was an innocent victim of a predatory male can be true at the same time that it's true that she was consciously looking for a big advantage in life. Now you can ask why would she, she'd already won Wimbledon at the time doubles and she'd won the French Open doubles. Why would someone with that much uh, money because you get money for that yeah. and fame and prestige need this extra boost of uh, affiliation with the top leader. I asked this very question to some Chinese friends. These You referred to them as the, the dissidents that are my friends. I asked them, why would she? She's already famous. And they said, oh, no, you don't get it. She can be as rich and famous in the outside world as can be, but it's still not the same as having this inside upper caste, you'd have to say, mm -hmm. privilege that association with the top leaders has. 
So again, I don't, I, I don't want to, to speak against Peng Shui. I sympathize with her. But the question in my mind is open. I'm just agnostic about mm -hmm. how much was motivated by her own wishes and how much was. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pressed on her by this man. That is very, very interesting. Uh, Barry, I, I was just thinking, because... I mentioned Sakharov, and there, there were so many famous men and women, especially men in the Soviet Union over the years of the Soviet Union, Sakharov, Solzhenitsyn, Bukovsky, others. Uh, they became known around the world. I don't know of equivalent Chinese figures. I, I wonder it's a matter of pronunciation. People like me don't know how to say Liu Xiaobo, and so maybe they don't talk about him. And he's, you know, known to the, you know, known to the likes of us. I was going to say freaks like us, but known to the general public. And, you know, Chinese communists has been in power since the late 1940s. But it seems to me that so few names have penetrated the world consciousness. Right. Right. But I, I entirely agree, of course. Uh, I've just finished a biography of Liu Xiaobo, uh, co-authored with my friend Tsui Weiping, who is a good friend of his. And it should be out from Columbia University Press within a year or so. Good. Our motivation in doing this full biography is to try to do what you just pointed out needs to be done. Chinese dissidents and Chinese people need to be full front in the world's consciousness more than they are. I remember when 1992 came and the Soviet Union crashed and the famous Chinese historian at Princeton, Ying Shi, uh, arguably before he died last year, the greatest China historian alive, <laughs> made a comment that struck home to me. He said, they're all saying the Cold War is over. The Cold War is over. But there's still China there. There's North, there's Vietnam, there's Cuba, there's North Korea. Why do we say the Korean, the, the Cold War is, is over when only half of it is over? Had it been the other way around, if the communist governments in North Korea and China and, and Vietnam had collapsed, would the Western world, would the world in general start saying, oh, the Cold War is over? No, so there is a double standard there. Fang Lijer, our friend, the astrophysicist, was very astute in pointing out these crypto double standards, you might call them. You're quite right, it's there and it's too bad. Barry, I'm a big free marketeer. I like international trade, but I don't like it uber alles. I think there are other considerations. And Elon Musk, the great Elon Musk of Tesla has just opened, a, I think a shop and showroom 
in Xinjiang province or East Turkestan as the Uyghurs call it. And it sickens me and my, uh, I get my immediate reaction was to think of a comment by Vili Schlamm that my old friend uh, uh, Bill Buckley uh, used to quote. And, and the quotation goes something like this. The problem with socialism is socialism. The problem with capitalism is capitalists. And um, I don't know whether it would make any difference to the Uyghurs, but I'd rather treat certainly that region in Western China as a pariah state saying, no, we're not going to make money off that. Make money there. Good Lord, make it elsewhere, Elon. Mm -hmm. am, I, uh, am I deluded or naive? Perry, you're missing something? No, no, I, I entirely agree. I'm having a trouble today, Jay, disagreeing with you about anything. Could, could you say something more outlandish so that I would I'll, have credibility I'll, here? I'll, I'll work on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to me, again, this uh, question of should uh, healthy, wealthy people in the West uh, do business in Xinjiang or not? Uh, the answer is no for me on two levels. One is it's a terrible thing to do to the people in Xinjiang. And in another sense, it's a terrible thing to do to yourself. I mean, we can live happy, normal, moral lives without, without making money that way. Uh, I'm often irritated when politicians and sometimes journalists uh, use the word national interests where implicitly the word interests means material interests. It's in the interests of the US. It's in the interests of Elon Musk to do this or that. Why? Because there's more money there. But human beings, well, you said this too, are, are more than money. Would I be a happier person if I owned a yacht and three vacation homes uh, while I viewed oppression of innocent people in Xinjiang? Or am I a happier person just in my own self, knowing that there is no oppression in Xinjiang and that I've helped to make it that way and I don't have any yachts or vacation homes, which me is gonna be the happier Perry Link. Maybe I'm just an old humanities professor and don't re represent the majority, but I would much rather have that what should we say? Moral interest rather than material interest to be my reward. And I don't think I am unusual. I mean, why do human beings have religions uh, and belief systems that are more than material? We're on this earth for our three score and 10 or whatever it is. And, and uh, we have our family, we have our values. Why doesn't that outweigh whether or not we have uh, twice as much GDP or personal income. Barry, toward the end here, I wanna take you a little farther afield. Some people spy a link, no pun intended, <laughs> spy a connection between the case of Ukraine and the case of Taiwan. And I'll tell you, I was just writing about this, a Ukrainian intellectual told me last year, he said, you Americans, he said, you're so naive. You talk about this pivot to China. 
So, you know, Russia's nothing. It's just minor at second rate. You know, China's the big thing, the big enchilada. You have to deal with China. Forget Russia. That's just a small concern. He said, these things are connected. He said, the Chinese leadership, they look at Russia to see what can be gotten away with. What happens if you shoot down a civilian airliner? Uh, what happens if you invade a neighboring country, if you annex territory? What happens if you launch cyber attacks against foreign governments, if you interfere with their elections? Does anything happen? What can you get away with? And uh, more people have said in recent days, China is watching how the West will respond to a further Russian invasion of Ukraine. What would happen if China made a grab for Taiwan? I wonder whether you would care to speak about this. I think it's true that these uh, major dictatorships do monitor the, each other in the world. And I'm sure people in Beijing are watching Ukraine to see, will it work there? What's gonna happen there? What does it mean for the tactics uh, with which we approach our grab for Taiwan? But I use the word tactics because uh, the underlying motivation in Beijing uh, doesn't have to do with this flip or flop elsewhere in the world so much as what we were talking about before, the garnering of public support inside China on nationalist grounds uh, in order to prop up the power of the Communist Party of China. I don't even think the, the men in Beijing care that much about the actual land in Taiwan or the booming economy in Taiwan. Well, it's not booming anymore, but it's certainly big and healthy for its size. They don't care about that so much as the use of Taiwan as their way of showing to all of the Chinese people that look, we are unifying the country, we are heroes, you have nationalism and you should support us. That is the underlying motivation of the men in Beijing, in my opinion. And they look at things like Ukraine and the Russians uh, at the tactical level, that is, when can we go, how far, uh, and that kind of, uh, of calculation. More than any recalibration of what they really want to do underneath, what they want to do underneath is support their own power as much as they can. Uh, Perry, I want to tell you something. You'll, you'll think, why the hell is Jay telling me this? And it will become clear. Um, I was in uh, the Metropolitan Opera not very long ago, sitting near a, a friend of mine, a, a Russian, a Russian-born music critic, really more of a, a general a culture and, and arts critic. And we were talking, and she said to her friend, Jay is such a Russophile. Now, some of my critics, especially on the right, call me a Russophobe because I'm anti-dictatorship. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-democracy. I'm anti-Kremlin. Jay's a Russophobe. And, and this lady said, Jay is such a Russophile. He loves Russian music and, 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 and dance and literature and language. And we're always discussing it. Are you, Perry, I think you must be in a very interesting position. You are a famous foe of the Chinese regime. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, including a lot of Chinese, including abroad, as you have pointed out on this show before, equate the Chinese regime with China. Right. You are a famous foe of that regime. And I don't know a greater lover of China 
from Chinese people and Chinese culture. You've lived with this, I might call it a, a tension or a dichotomy for a long time. And I wonder whether you have noticed it as I have noticed it in you or about you. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, other people notice that in me more than I notice it in myself, though, because I figure, I've, never, yeah. <laughs> I've never felt at all ambiguous about that. Uh, this really might sound uh, presumptuous, but to me, the Communist Party feels like an outsider. Me and my Chinese friends and Chinese literature and Chinese history and everything that I've devoted my life to and that I love is the heart of things. That's the center. And this group that seized power in 1949 and has ridden herd on the country that I love for 70 years, they're the outsiders. <laughs> That's the way it feels to me inside. So it's not a split so much. I don't, I always feel awkward when people say, how does it feel to study the country that hates you? I never felt that the country hates me mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those there's a party People that doesn't heard on top of the country don't like me that's for sure Perry, i'll tell you another story this this tickles me as we'd say in my native midwest um i had a standard answer for years people would ask me jay why are you so interested in languages and the english language and wordplay and names and all that and i'd always say i don't know i just don't know some people collect butterflies right uh, uh some people collect uh postage stamps and coins i don't know Right. Flash way forward. I had Ann Applebaum on this program, okay. a girl, American girl from Washington, D.C., who became a, a well-known scholar of Eastern Europe and Russia. And I said to her, why this interest in Eastern Europe and Russia? You know what she said? I almost fell off my chair, Perry. She said, and I quote, some people collect butterflies. That's yeah. exactly what she said. Right. Perry, why? Why China? Why, why, why was young Perry Link? Where did you grow up, Perry? I forget. Uh, uh, upper New York State, New Paltz, New York. New Paltz, I know New Paltz. Um, why China? That was sort of a chance, actually. Uh, if you go to the why butterflies level, I'm with you here too. I can't explain why I like words and wordplay and puns and jokes and things like that. That's just native in me. Uh, and I, from the time I was in high school, I liked languages. I studied French. I did very well in French in high school. And when I got to college, wanted to do a language that was more mind bending from English hmm. than French was. I wanted something different and chose Chinese and majored in philosophy. Here we are, you know, wordplay and uh, things that are more intrinsic to the enjoyment in my brain. Uh, but I took Chinese on the side, partly because it cast interesting philosophical light on things. You know, all nouns in Chinese are collective nouns, just as Plato sort of has them. And, there's no person, there's humanity. And if we talk about Jay Nordlinger as a person, we have to say he is eager and he is one individuation of humanity. And this kind of 
rethinking the world in a different language appealed to me. And I went on with it to a second year. Then when I graduated, Harvard gave me a traveling fellowship, it was called, where you can go anywhere in the world and spend a year as long as you write about it later. And I did, and I went to Hong Kong because I'd studied Chinese. And that year in Hong Kong changed me. I just fell in love with everything Chinese. Now, if I had chosen Hindi, of course, Harvard didn't offer Hindi at the time, but if I'd chosen Arabic, and then on that fellowship had gone to Egypt, I might be an Egyptologist today. So at that yeah. level, China was a serendipitous event. Mm. Uh, the Why Butterflies event was more a, just a, a natural born interest in language and how it relates to ideas. Perry, uh, as a philosophy student, as an undergrad, did you have uh, uh, big names like Rawls and no oh, yeah. and uh, Nozick yes. and, and maybe the, the, the late E.O. Wilson? Not Theo Wilson, but I took a seminar with John Rawls as a senior. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a senior thesis on ethical absolutism. Uh, and two very young scholars were appointed to be my readers. And I was disappointed that they weren't giving me the big names in the department. One of them though was Robert Nozick. <laughs> <laughs> he read my senior thesis. Uh, so yes. Those, those people had a big effect on me and still do. I still audit uh, philosophy seminars and read in philosophy sometimes, sometimes just for fun. This British analytics school is what Harvard did at the time and I still like it. Uh, trying to get clear on how we use words and how that might or might not help to untie some classical philosophical problems. Was, was uh, I don't know philosophy at all, was Bernard Williams part of that movement? Yeah, Bernard Williams was, was there too. I took a course from him. Mm. Um, and then, then uh, in, for your doctorate, you studied Chinese history, am I correct? Right. Are, are you too young for Fairbank? No, no, was he? he was the was chair he? of my dissertation committee. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm. Uh, on the Chinese language, Another guest on this program has been Jerry Cohen. Yes. And he said, I'm looking at my notes here. He said he had his first Chinese, very late in life, comparatively, he had his first Chinese lesson at nine in the morning on August 15th, 1960, a month and a half after his 30th birthday. <laughs> and, then, and he likes to cite a maxim of Confucius, establish right. yourself at 30. Right. So... And that 30 seems to me awfully late for a first Chinese lesson. It is. Yeah. But not yeah. too late, I guess. Right. Is there any hope for well, the rest I've, of us if we're interested? Or I've taught beginning Chinese about 25 times, mostly at Princeton, but also at Harvard and uh, Middlebury summer schools. So I can say with pretty good confidence that it's highly unusual to be able to start at age 30 and do well. In general, the best time, the students who did the best were the teenagers, the young undergraduates uh, in their teens. If you get past 20, the ability to learn characters and grammar is just as good or better, but the ear and the tongue are not. 
it becomes harder to learn how to pronounce well as you move into your 20s. And for students that come after 30, it's almost impossible to develop a natural native sounding fluency orally. You can still learn to read and to translate at that age. So for Jerry to start after he turned 30 is, is truly unusual. Well, Perry Link here at the end, I'm gonna take advantage of you again. Um, uh, Chinese literature is thousands of years old. And to some of us, it is a blank spot, all of it. It would be cruel and wrong and stupid to ask you to recommend one poem or novel in this the vast time span of Chinese literature. But for ignoramuses, are there a couple of books you suggest in translation? I mean, if someone said to me, Jay, give me something to read in English. I mean, I'd, I'd just be, I'd be immovable. I wouldn't be able to open my mouth. I wouldn't know what to say. Yeah. No, and maybe it, you know, maybe I might say like, oh, oh, you know, try this Keats poem. Right. I don't know, read one novel of Dickens. I don't know. You know, but, yeah. I, but I, so I realize that I'm asking you to do the equivalent, but do you have a little list or a few suggestions for people when this question comes up? What, what can I read in translation from China? What, what, what's great or what might touch my heart? Uh, do you mean uh, traditional China, pre-modern or also including the 20th century? The whole shebang. Yeah. I think for the 20th century, I would recommend Lu Xun, who is generally regarded as modern China's best writer of fiction. And it's my opinion too. He has a group of uh, short stories called Outcry, Nahan in Chinese and pretty well translated by several different translators. The ones that I use are by Gladys Yang and her husband Yang Xianyi, who suffered through the Mao era in China, but did some wonderful translations of his stories. So if you look for short stories of Lu Xun, that's pretty darn good, yeah. For pre-modern things, the language problem becomes monumental mm -hmm. because I have written elsewhere that I think the best Chinese literature for me is Tang poetry. And there again, that I'm not unusual in that view, but Tang poems are so complex and exquisite uh, in Chinese, but you can't translate them. I mean, people like Ezra Pound, who didn't know Chinese at the time, did about as well as one can do to dig into the meanings and then recreate a poem uh, based on the inspiration of the original. But that's quite, that, that's very free translation, quote unquote. So the short answer there is to get into the very heart of the very best pre-modern writing no shortcut you have to learn chinese <laughs> but if you want a, uh, a my quick overview on the difficulty of that problem i wrote a piece in the new york review of books about what six or eight years ago uh, which was a review of a book by elliot weinberger who was translating a chinese poem in 37 different ways. He'd collected 37 different ways that people had translated 
the same Tang poem and discuss them. And the brunt of my, the nub of my piece is to say, all of those 37 are arguably good translations. There's no such thing as a perfect translation. Even if you feel you have completely got to the bottom of the, of the poem in Chinese, it's impossible to put it into English adequately. And that article of mine in the New York Review of Books is, explains in as good a detail as I can do why it's impossible. And by going through why it's impossible, I think you can get a glimmer of the beauty of the original. Uh, Perry, how do you spell in Latin letters uh, the name of the author of Outcry? Uh, L-U and then X-U-N. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Jay Nordlinger doing Q&A, whose producer is Madeline Osborne. Our sponsor is X-Chair. We've been listening to Perry Link. Perry, there's a great, my favorite country music lyric is, when your phone ain't ringing, that'll be me. When you and I aren't watching the Olympics, I'll think of you. Perry, thank you so much for thank you, Jay. joining me. Looking forward to the next time. So long, everybody. Bye-bye. Join the conversation.